Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about ancient medical practices, as well as the Justinian plague of the 6th century. But what about the 14th century epidemic that decimated the European population, you ask? You know, the one that actually gave these episodes their names? Today we'll start by getting into exactly that. First though, I do want to mention that, like with part 1, HI101 is a PG-rated show, but we are talking about an epidemic that kills millions of people in kind of a terrible way, so some discretion might be advised with some younger listeners. Uh, With that in mind, let's begin. We're here on HI101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. And we spent the entire first half of this topic not talking about the topic at all. Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, we did mention it for about 30 seconds at the beginning, which is that in 1357, uh, is it 1357? I've already forgotten the years. 1347, sorry. Uh, over a four-year span between 75 and 200 million people died. Yeah, we covered that very briefly. Which is, which is kind of the short version of this whole story. Yeah. Um, there's just so much more to it. Well, we had to learn... Uh, some uh, medical stuff or some pseudo-medical stuff sure. from that era. Got your humorism, your miasmas. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our elemental medical system mm-hmm. seemed pretty good. Yep. And how uh, if you did encounter the plague, you did not have a hope mm-hmm. of containing it. Correct. We also talked about uh, the, just, the Justinian plague because uh, that, that was, that was uh, plague number one. Turns out the Black Death is uh, plague number two. Yep. Black and it was Boogaloo. pretty rough. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to get real bad, dude. We uh, we have to talk about what Europe was like before the plague, though, to kind of understand what the plague is going to do. That's... Sounds, sounds like something we should do. Are you excited for this? You don't seem excited for this. I'm, uh, I'm cautiously pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> you seem a little worried. I can't understand why. I can't imagine... <laughs> What well, would make you so hesitant? Especially when the first show was just so cheery. Let's talk about historical climatology. It's kind of nonsense. It's very inaccurate. However, there is a general understanding that for whatever reason, for several centuries, starting in and around 900 or so, maybe a little before, Europe got kind of warm. And this is a period that facilitated uh, the spread of the Vikings. We talked about that in the, in the Viking episode that I did. 
made places that aren't normally terribly habitable more comfortable, i.e. Norway. Mm. And in general, gave Europe a longer growing season, just more pleasant winters, things like that. Uh, it was a nice place to be for a while. And when things get nice like that, populations tend to grow. And grow it did for uh, about 300 years, between around 1050 or so uh, until uh, the beginning of the 14th century. So around the year 1300. And then it started getting real cold. Like very suddenly, very cold, and this is this is sometimes re- referred to as the 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 little ice age. Maybe you've heard that term before. I haven't actually. It got several degrees on average colder per year, enough that it was noticeable. Um, you have, uh, for example, reports of the Thames freezing over during the winter in this period, where you hadn't had it for uh, for any period before that. The causes of this are just as widely disputed as some of the stuff we've talked about with the plague. It's it's all very speculative. I, I've heard both there were too many humans and there were not enough humans as explanations. One, one being that when all the humans died off, more trees came back, which absorbed more carbon dioxide, which made it warmer again after the, the medieval ice age. One being that there were so many humans that they cut down too many trees that the earth, earth became more reflective because of all the bare ground, which caused the ice age. Reflective. This is actually a problem. This is a, this is a real problem with, uh, with climate change today, which is that the more the polar ice caps shrink, uh, the less reflective the earth becomes overall because those, those white ice caps reflect a lot of solar energy back out into outer space. So it's an it's a, it's a, um, exponential problem. The more they shrink, the warmer it gets, and the warmer it gets, the more they shrink. Hmm. Bad, bad feedback loop. Anyways, uh, volcanic ac- activity has been blamed, like all sorts of, you know, the usual. But it got cold. It got cold. It got cold enough that um, crops started doing poorly. Now, while it was still warm and nice, uh, people tend to migrate around when things are warm and nice, and that's exactly what the Mongols did in the 13th century. So, you know, about 60 years ago, or 60 years before what we're about to talk about, uh, in the mid-1200s, you've got uh, hordes of Mongolian soldiers just devastating vast swaths of Europe and Asia. Um, They never really got as far as Germany and France and things like that. It was, uh, there's a bunch of theories for it. I I think people overthink it a little bit. The main problem was that Genghis Khan died. And when the Khan died, uh, all the leaders returned to the the capital to elect a new one. Mm. And it interrupted the the campaign into Europe. There's, there's other factors, you know, heavier forestation, more fortresses, heavier population, things like that. But timing seems to be a lot of it. Places like uh, Bulgaria and uh, Poland took uh, the brunt of that in in Europe, at least. I mean, it's it's nothing compared to uh, what China went through during the Mongol expansion. But you know, we're right. we're talking a lot about Europe today. Yeah. That being said, uh, even though they stop advancing into Europe, uh, there is the establishment of something called the Golden Horde uh, during this time period, in which there's essentially a, a, a new state created in uh, more or less Russia that's ruled by. The Mongolians, and it's a it's a nomadic government, but they do have control over a vast swath of land. One of the interesting uh, uh, results of the Mongol invasion is that it made the Silk Road much safer than it had been in centuries, because the Mongols liked money, so they liked trade. They also liked law and order. 
they were brutal in their enforcement of law and order. This all kind of sums up to a Silk Road where basically the penalties for raiding any traders on the Silk Road were so astronomically high that you might as well just become a trader yourself and make lots of money because you were safe doing so. If you chose to raid a wagon train, I, I mean, the, the punishments are terrible. Right. You, you don't want to mess with that. Risk reward not really panning out. Exactly. And so, listen, the, the Mongols were terrible people. They did a lot of terrible things. That being said, one of the effects that they had on Europe and Asia was a very safe uh, trading network. And it really opened up the East to Europe in a way that it hadn't been open really ever before. Um, that trade route had always kind of existed, but it had always been a very dangerous one. And this is the era in which you start seeing Italian city-states start to really thrive on mercantilism, especially the uh, Venetians and the Genoese. And to do so, they'll start establishing cities you know, along the Black Sea and things like that, just because they're, they're kind of vassal cities that, that are there strictly to make trade faster and more efficient. Right. But then you have this, this cold snap, this several centuries long cold snap. And all of a sudden, agriculture in Europe gets a little worse. Starting in, in 1280, actually, it's, it's very like a sharp uh, uh, line. The quality of the crop yields goes down drastically. Part of the problem here is that 13th century farming techniques are not exactly uh, well known for their ability to retain the fertility of soil. Mm. Part of the problem is the, the they, weather they itself. They didn't have like sustained farming techniques no the uh the uh crop rotation uh is going to be a, a slightly later innovation jeez how about that we're working with some very basic stuff here today i've worked hard on a number of episodes to avoid using terms like dark age why well, and, and again i i sit here making fun of things like humors and and poor farming practices sure. but that's because I, I can yeah no no as, as you should it's it's bad it was bad. No, what I was what I was going to say is as much as I try to avoid that term, when I'm sitting here researching the 13th and 14th centuries, it's it's hard to fault people for believing that there was a just utter collapse of of civility and and decency in in uh, in the years following the fall of the Roman Empire. I, it wasn't a good time. A good year would give you a crop yield of about seven to one ratio. So basically, for every seed you put in the ground. You get seven back, which means you keep uh, one and seven for replanting, and then you have six to eat or to sell. And that's a decent year. Uh, there were years that the yield was as bad as two to one. So you, wh whatever your yield is, half has to go back into planting next year's crop. That's not good. They were already running so tight that even those seven to one years meant that some people were going to be going hungry. You've heard the term carrying capacity before sure are you at all familiar with the way that that kind of impacts demographics in general or the theories behind it? okay basically the idea is that the earth can only just like physically chemically biologically support so much agriculture and that there is a certain point at which there will be more people than there can be food produced and the, the guy who who uh who came up with this uh, with this concept? I believe his name was Malthus. The thing that he, he failed to take into account is that better crops and better farming techniques get you better yields, and so you can increase the Earth's carrying capacity. And so the disaster that he was predicting would come about 
um, as, as populations increased in the 19th century never came about, but only because we found better farming techniques and better crops. Right. Um, the earth in the 14th century, at least in Europe, hit carrying capacity and then some, like the, the, the population increased even more to the point that there are regions of France today that are less populated than they were at the beginning of the 14th century. Part of that is the trend towards urbanization and concentration of populations in small areas. Sure, but still, it's still just like it, it, it's a it's a very it's a very vivid picture that that paints. Modern crop yields are thirty to one, just to give you an idea. Then in thirteen fifteen, there was an unusually heavy rain in the spring, very heavy, and it continued to rain, and the summer didn't get very warm, and it continued to rain. And this is a problem because part of the agricultural process involves letting the seeds dry out. Also, basically after you harvest wheat, you leave the, the chaff to dry and it turns into fodder for your animals. It wasn't drying. You weren't getting hay. You weren't getting straw. And people started moving their grain indoors just to let it just dry off. People started moving the animals indoors to just keep them from getting hoof rot. It was pretty bad. It's a lot of rain. It attracts pests into their homes because they're, they've got these big metal casks of grain that they're trying to dry out, which is just a feast for rats. With that comes disease. We're not at the plague yet, but listen, anytime you've got a whole bunch of open grain containers and you've got a bunch of rodents living in it and eating it, eating it and, uh, you know, yeah, inevitably... You're leaving droppings in it you're framing a really tough time and we have not gotten to the plague oh no no this is all precursor to the plague yeah there's something called the crisis of the 14th century and the plague is a part of it right yeah good topic colin (laughs) (laughs) oh dear the price of salt increased by like a full third because brine couldn't dry out properly like, it wasn't evaporating off quickly enough. And salt is your main way of preserving food at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have meat rotting that wouldn't normally necessarily be rotting. This is a disaster. There have been famines before. This is unprecedented. To the point that we are, we're basically talking about apocalyptic situations here. People are able to make flour to make bread like they're they're the 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 return on the grain of of this this season is so low that there's just not enough food for anyone on the 10th of august king edward ii of england is traveling with his retinue and has trouble finding bread the king of england can't find bread he eventually finds some that's that's the thing that happened he had a hard time the the king of england had a hard time finding food what this translates to for the general population yeah. is recorded incidents of older people, like old people, voluntarily just no longer eating to make sure that the younger generation had a chance to survive. People were doing something that's known as uh, mortgaging their future, um, which is a very clinical way of saying, you know, all that grain that they have to save so that they can plant next year's crops. They started eating that. All of the animals that they had been growing or that they've been raising for meat or say for milk, milk cows, uh, 
chickens. Uh, they'd already killed those, and they started moving into the draft animals, so killing the oxes that would pull their plows. Gotta eat something. Which means that you have nothing to plant or to help you plant Yeah, not, not a very good long-term strategy. Yeah, it's it's bad. There are instances of people essentially abandoning their children in the woods to fend for themselves in the hopes that they'll somehow make it through because they had to survive themselves. Remember in Hansel and Gretel where the stepmother comes along and basically just says, we don't have enough food. Let's, let's abandon the children in the woods. Yeah, that's because that was a thing that was happening. <sighs> that was based on a real they thing. They weren't just horrible parents? No. Mm. I mean, I don't know if you can necessarily make the argument that they were great parents, <laughs> yeah. but in the context of the crisis of the 14th century and this, the Great Famine, uh, I mean, they weren't the only ones either. It got so bad that there were multiple, like like numerous recorded incidents of cannibalism. I was wondering if that was going to come up. Mm -hmm. Still not at the plague yet. We're not at the plague yet. <laughs> it's, it's cool. All right, let's, let's keep going. I mean, it took until like 1325, like it took like a good 10 years for food levels to normalize again, for crop levels to normalize again. In that time, between 10, or 10 and 25% of the population starved to death. It was a very, very hard time. And the people who did survive, keep in mind, health is a very holistic thing. And there's a difference between surviving and being healthy. And you have an entire generation here of people who have stunted growth, who have gone through uh, incredibly difficult times, like just incredibly hard times, that have very weakened immune systems because they're also getting sick this entire time uh, when they, they have nothing to eat. Tuberculosis was rampant, pneumonia was rampant, bronchitis was rampant. It's not even that these are the worst diseases in the world. I mean, I mean TB is pretty pretty bad and pneumonia is not great but like they're they're generally survivable but they take a massive physical toll a massive physical toll given the the historian who wrote the decline and fall of the roman empire uh once wrote that the second century in rome was the greatest time and place to be alive he was writing this in the 17th century i feel like the flip side to that might be 14th century europe so far you're not getting any argument from me. <laughs> By the way, the uh, the Hundred Years' War is going to break out shortly after this. <sighs> of course it is. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the Hundred Years' War. Um, it's one of those ones that I think that is it's not terribly well known. It's interesting. I didn't have enough time to go into it in as much depth as I would have liked, but the gist of it is basically the, the Norman invasion of England, 1066, um, William the Conqueror, all that. The people who were doing the invading were were Norman. They were French, actually originally uh, Viking, but that's a that's a whole different story. They still had land holdings in Europe, uh, like on the continent in France. In fact, the the country of France at the beginning of the 14th century is maybe a third of the country that we think of now. The rest of it was divided up into other kingdoms, and basically uh, a crisis of succession brought everything to a head, and the, the two countries went to war over basically figuring out who ruled which bits of land, and th this was going to take uh, about 117 years to sort itself out. Not least of which because they had to keep taking breaks to deal with things like famine and plague, as well as uh, you know a few truces here and there. 
but this is the uh this is the world we're entering i think it's i think it's finally time that we can reintroduce our friend Wypestus into this whole mix um in 1331 plague broke out in china after actually a series of similar famines there's clearly a link between overall public health and the instances of of bubonic plague it's not necessary for everyone to be unhealthy but it certainly helps things along if you are the plague helps if things are dirty immune systems are bad Mm -hmm. man i mean this is not a question that's you know useful to ask but why wouldn't they put a pause on things like war when everything else is so crappy well, um, because they can't control when a crisis of succession happens is mm. one answer. Another would be by the time that the Hundred Years' War finally does break out, in it, it's 1337 that it breaks out, things have been bad for a while already. And I mean, we'll get into it a little bit more as we go, but Europe gets very fatalistic, which I don't think you can avoid in mm. a scenario like this. And if there's that acceptance that, well, you know, plagues are going to happen, I guess, I guess this is our lives now. Hey, why, why let a little thing like a plague hold you up? There's still dynasties to be ruled. Uh, I suppose. <laughs> the kings are still eating. Yeah. The, the plague hits everyone equally, but at least they're not hungry. And that's kind of what matters when it comes to things like this. There's, there's estimates that as many as... Uh, or possibly even more than 25 million people are killed in China by this outbreak of bubonic plague uh, before it even reaches Europe. It also hits India. Um, India is is surprisingly not as hard hit as most other areas. It's fairly well suited to the spread of bubonic plague, but overall in the 14th century, the the overall population is actually going to increase, and it's one of the few places in the world where it does. So mm-hmm. This is one thing that we're going to find. It's not a uniform experience with this disease, right? Which is, I, I know sounds kind of obvious, but there is this picture of a very homogenous European experience with the plague, and that's not quite the case. There's a true story of how this spreads, and then there's a good story of how this spreads. The good story is that in 1347, uh, the Mongols lay siege to a city called Kaffa. It's got a new name now. It's... It's on the Black Sea. It's owned by Genoa. And during this siege, the Mongols, who are already riddled with with plague, having come from further east, execute the first recorded incident of biological warfare in history, in which they load the bodies of their comrades who have died of the plague into catapults and fling them over the city walls to infect the residents. Because of this action, Genoese traders flee from the city, understandably, and uh, return home, bringing with them the Black Death. Hmm. It's a good story. It's a very good story. The reality of it is that this is the kind of thing that spreads through numerous vectors, and there is a lot of contact between East and West on numerous fronts. And uh, You've got the trade routes. You've got... Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's other things. There's, there's many other things. That's a good story, but it's, it's never quite that simple, especially when it comes to diseases. People like to look for single events and uh, simple explanations for uh, systems that are far more complex than that really allows. Um, and this is the one that they came up with. Now, this did happen at Kaffa, 
it's it's not that it's just that it's not as though had that not happened the plague would not have reached europe you know what i mean right the technique of flinging the corpses i don't know indicates a better understanding of disease than i would have thought was present at the time it still fits into the framework of 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 ancient medicine i mean get the miasma yep those bodies sure did smell Mm -hmm. let's fling them smelly bodies yep okay fair enough yeah it's it's yeah pretty much i mean the mongols were always a very brutally practical people they saw they saw an opportunity for a, a, a very effective solution to a problem they were having and they they decided to use it absolutely brutal the plague arrives in Constantinople and in Genoa in, in 1347 and just catches like wildfire. It's, it's, uh, it's brutal right out the gate. And really the, the, the spread from here into Europe is not terribly interesting in and of itself, other than the fact that it happens very quickly. By 1348, it's reached as far as um, Paris by 1349 it's it's gotten onto the british isles 1350 up to norway 1351 it's it's gotten all the way to moscow just very quickly spreading through the entire population uh each summer it kind of flares up again bringing more deaths people are 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 dying incredibly quickly and incredibly painfully we talked at the in the first section about all the the symptoms that they would have been dealing with and the horrible ways that they were dying we don't have to retread that particular yeah i'm good yeah that's fine what is interesting is that in general the patterns and the severity follow the level of population density and um sophistication of trade happening at that point in time and this this kind of manifests in some odd ways places like say switzerland which is kind of isolated up in the mountains tends to more or less uh, avoid the worst of it places like uh say venice which is very warm and very uh densely populated and um has has uh strong trade networks you're talking as as much as 80 percent of the population uh being killed by this plague interestingly enough basically just went around poland just Just didn't really stick there get into poland some people got sick and died and it wasn't really enough to really make that much of a difference i mean the the thing to understand there is that poland was extremely sparsely populated like it was a very rural country they already have some no they just didn't really they were they were very isolated trade uh trade wise you mentioned the mongols had that was over a century before oh okay or or about a century before um they they had turned back in in poland but uh they weren't actively trading with the golden horde at this point in time and really that's that's what mattered no, if you if you look at a heat map of of percentage of population affected by the by the plague um, in these four years, there's a big old green circle right over Krakow. Mm-hmm. Good on them. Uh, it's it's just one of those things, right? I mean, that's part of the reason that we're not talking about a ton of like names or uh, political entities. Even is that we're not really talking about human history. We're just watching human beings have something happen to them and there's there's some you know there's some adjacent things that we can talk about there's lots of adjacent things that we can talk about but up until the plague strikes i mean there's not really a lot of agency at play here this is a non-sentient force of nature that's just sort of occurring it's just sort of existing it depends on where you are between 20 and 80 percent of the population would have been affected by plague 
some places not nearly as bad. It kind of averages out to around 50% of the population. Jeez. Yeah. It's it's absolutely brutal. It's 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 a horrendous time to be alive. The Middle East was also affected, especially big cities. You've got you know, you've got Alexandria, you've got Mecca, you've got Jerusalem, Damascus, Aleppo even. Baghdad got it quite badly several times over. But again, the the overall uh, percentage would have been lower than Europe. Europe seemed to really be right in the plague's wheelhouse. Um, hmm. I mean, China had had it quite badly as yeah, well. But yeah. you know, there's there's something about the way it caught on in 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 Europe that it it really did a number on them. And you know, it's it's not hard to see why beyond the the medical issues, which we we've we've gone over a number of times that uh, you know humorism is just not equipped to deal with this a major city in the 14th century doesn't really have a sewer system to speak of which means that there's human waste in the streets which is a recipe for public health disaster animals often living in the same spaces as people which is again really bad news there are lots of very very terrible diseases that can move between animals and human beings, uh, especially um, the kinds of domestic animals that people are keeping. And, you know, as we mentioned briefly in the in the first one, the plague isn't terribly picky about what it infects. Most mammals are fair game for mm. the bubonic plague. Some better than others, obviously, but it'll live in a lot of stuff. So livestock? To some extent. Yeah. Again, rodents are where it thrives, but... It, it, it's not unheard of for it to get into livestock. The Hundred Years' War breaking out uh, doesn't help things. No. That means soldiers living in poor conditions, which is not conducive to health. It means wounds, which are always infected at this point in time. You know, we talked about all the different infection factors for the bubonic plague. Mm-hmm. If you're injured in warfare, that's leaving a big hole in your de- in your defenses. Um, Sometimes literally. Very, very, very literally. You don't tend to eat well on campaign. You don't tend to drink good water on campaign. Also, soldiers get sick. They go and they march down the road for a couple dozen miles every week. They're spreading it all over the place. The Hundred Years' War is the first time that there's been, you know, at least by the end of the war, uh, the first time that there's been organized professional armies in Europe since the Roman Empire. Before this, it was a lot of like the whole feudalism style uh lord raising serfs kind of uh warfare this went on long enough that becoming a professional soldier was a viable career option and kind of saw the the return of the professional soldier but the problem with being a professional soldier is lots of travel lots of infection uh potential yeah did not help things at all and beyond that treatment of the plague at this point in time is you know still bloodletting Basically, I mean, even during the the plague of Justinian, there was basically zero uh, treatment whatsoever. Um, we've advanced somewhat, and I use that word "advanced" very hesitantly uh, when it comes to medicine. But things are a little bit better, just just not a lot. the The idea of quarantine is introduced during the Black Death. Hmm. Um, it, it comes from the the Italian "quaranta giorni," which is forty days. Yeah. If you were coming into a port, you sat away from everyone else for 40 days until they made sure that either you didn't have the plague or the plague made a run of it. 40 you days. Were done. Yeah. That's a while. 
they actually started with 30 and then upped it to 40. The paranoia around it was significant. And Understandably. I mean, again, remember that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what exactly this disease is. There isn't that concept of incubation periods or of the fact that if you get it and you beat it, then you're immune to it. That concept of immunity just doesn't exist. So as far as they're concerned, you could just break out in plague anytime. It was first introduced in 1348, so the year after uh, the, the, the plague really hit Europe, uh, in Dubrovnik. It was soon adopted for houses. Basically, they would seal people in houses. Uh, they put a cross over the door and write, Lord have mercy upon them on the door and hope for the best. Sometimes they'd make it. Mostly they wouldn't. Pretty much. That's that's about accurate. People would carry bouquets of flowers, keep the fresh flowers close to their faces. Of course, you got to keep that going. For some time, there was this idea that the, you know, the, the rhyme ring around the rosy was about the plague. Uh, probably not. Mm. It's, it's probably got a lot more to do with kind of uh, spring ritual maypole type stuff mm. uh, than, than the plague. That's that's. That interpretation doesn't come up until the 20th century, and, and even then, it, it doesn't really match the symptoms of the plague as well as as uh, some people have, have posited. So I, I don't personally buy it, but um, that's something that they say about it. I've heard that before, yeah. Well, the you know the the pocket full of posies is carrying the, the flowers, and most versions are are some version of a sneezing sound, you know, a tissue or or uh, hasha hasha. The idea being that if you if if the plague becomes the mnemonic style you have less than five percent chance of surviving right we all fall down again it's it's not accurate but the carrying the flowers is something that absolutely happened the afflicted tended to uh be taken to fresh air to get away from the miasma and 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 this was sometimes fairly uh, effective because usually that meant that you're taking them away from other healthy people and, and, and protecting those other healthy people as well as taking them away from the things that are infecting them, such as fleas and, you know, open ditches of human waste. Mm. But the problem with that is generally the places that they're taking them to with all this fresh air uh, doesn't have the plague, which means that you're taking the plague to these places and helping to spread it around even more. So it's not necessarily the most helpful from a like herd immunity type perspective but they don't get that no they don't they, they have no no concept of it the main advice given to people about the plague was three steps flee quickly tarry long and return slowly get far away from whoever is sick stay away for a while and take your time coming back because you don't want to come back too soon or else you might catch it too that was the single most effective thing you could do against the plague i guess so yeah I mean, if you had it already, going far away was not necessarily a good call. If you had it already, your chances were already one in five at best. Yeah. There was something known as the uh, Four Thieves vinegar. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Um, We're not exactly sure when people started making the Four Thieves vinegar. Estimates are anywhere from the the beginning of the plague to the 17th century. The story behind this mixture, which was basically just vinegar with a number of uh, herbs in it and which herbs they were varies from recipe to recipe. There are, there are countless recipes for it. Um, The story behind it was that there was this group of thieves who had found this concoction that prevented them from getting the plague and they would coat themselves in this vinegar and sneak into the houses that had been sealed 
with the plague written inside them and relieve them of all of their valuables before it would be declared safe and their family members would be able to come in and retrieve anything important to them. Sorry, they would cover themselves on the outside with the vinegar? They would coat themselves in vinegar, yes. Vinegar Hmm. and herbs, which would protect them against the miasma. Of course. There are a lot of variations on this story, uh, a lot of which involve one of the thieves uh, sabotaging the mixture of the others so that they would get sick and die and they would get away with the, the mixture. There was often a, a, an element of, of um, dramatic irony in which, you know, someone would get complacent with it and, you know, try and double cross their friends but end up dying themselves. You know, there's a lot of really good potential for legends that go on here, right? And, right. and they were they were plentiful, believe me. There has been some suggestion that maybe this wasn't actually the worst uh, preventative method for uh, for the plague because it may have uh, deterred fleas, which was the main way that you would get it. Okay. I would not necessarily call it an effective It's not going to help with the many, many other ways of, uh, yeah. of transferal. Yeah. That honestly seemed more likely. Yeah. But fleas, sure. I mean, the fleas did the majority of the transmission based on the the types of bubonic plague that people were catching, mainly the the bubonic form of it. Because if you're catching it from from the droplets, most likely that's going to turn uh, straight into pneumonic plague Mm. um, because the droplets are going to go into your lungs. Now, I mean, if it hits your your eyes or your your you know other mucous membranes then sure it'll turn into bubonic plague but if you if you actually inhale it um then it'll be pneumonic and if you get it into an open wound it's likely going to turn straight into the 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 blood infection so yeah it's 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 hard to say and again we're we're speculating on things that we're never going to necessarily know for sure because the medicine at the time has no way of actually leaving us meaningful records but so it goes towns started hiring plague doctors fairly early on and this is kind of one of the earliest examples of kind of a form of universal medicine in that they're being paid by the government they would treat anyone who came to them the role of a plague doctor is really interesting because it would absolutely make you incredibly wealthy they were very well paid it also made you a complete social pariah because by necessity you lived in constant quarantine right partially for your own safety partially for the safety of everyone around you, because if you're seeing plague victims all the time, there's a good chance you're going to catch it yourself. Yeah, do they have a good enough understanding, the plague doctors, to at least prevent generally themselves from getting it? Yes, but for all the wrong reasons. Mm. Plague doctors would definitely take precautions against uh, uh, touching patients, but they also tended to do a lot of things involving perfumes and, and, and other smells to protect themselves that, you know, were effective, um, but more because of the distance they're keeping from their patients than anything else and really the main procedure that they're doing is is still bloodletting at this point in time eventually plague doctors are going to be well known for their their garb uh that wasn't invented until actually we know exactly when it was invented 1619 by a doctor called uh dr uh charles lorm who invented a a getup that was basically either leather or waxed canvas from head to toe like it was a it was a full gown right down to your ankles with uh, the same for gloves so protecting your hands and you've likely seen pictures of it but they had a, a a metal mask that they would put over their face that had glass holes for the eyes so you could see out and a long beak and they would fill that beak uh with basically potpourri there was a number of things that they would put in and it kind of depends on the 
the person for what they believe is most effective against miasma. You know, juniper berries were a very uh, common one, and you know, you'll you'll see all sorts of different things that are supposedly able to ward off the miasma of the of the plague. And then they usually topped it off with this this hat, which seems to be more stylistic than anything, as far as I can tell. But it's like a wide brimmed, flat topped hat. Um, they look crazy creepy, man. If I think I've seen, seen this look before, but I didn't know it was a real thing. Yeah. I always assumed it was some kind of a no. fantasy was, uh, type thing. It was real. Oh, geez. These, these beaked masks may have actually been used as early as the 14th century as well. We're not entirely sure. They were only standardized. In because the, the beaks were full of nice smelling things. Correct. Hmm. Yeah, this miasma theory goes deep. Like it's, it's, it's important to practicing medicine during the Black Death. Yeah, again, you're not going to see a move away from that until the 19th century, so don't don't hold your breath. But the amazing thing is that that garb is actually pretty good at protecting you from the Black Death. It it uh, it, it protects you from contact. They would often carry canes so that they would they would inspect people by poking them with a long cane rather than actually touching them themselves. It protects your eyes. It protects your uh, your mouth. Even if someone sneezes directly at you, you know the holes on the on the the mask to allow you to breathe are on the underside, and it's it's you know it's not going to go up and in and around, and you know it's 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 not bad. It'll do the job, and and the thing is, under the system, as soon as it's doing the job, well, why why fix what's not broken? Yeah. I, I mean, the the guard was also um, to some extent there to advertise what exactly you were, so that people would stay away from you. It was meant to be. Like slightly terrifying to keep people away. Warning, there is plague here. I have been with people who have the plague. You don't want to be near me. I gotta Google a picture of this. Yeah, go for it. It's quite bad. It's it's as scary as it sounds. The other the other procedure that they would often do is um, bursting buvos. They felt that if they could let whatever it was that was inside those that was toxic, because they they believed it was like it had to be something humor based and it had to be an excess, right? Uh, you found a picture. I did. It's bad, isn't it? So I play like Dark Souls. Sure. I feel like this is something I'd see in that in that particular video game series. Mm-hmm. Yep, I can see that. Just terrifying. Yep. So what they would do to burst these is they would take feather quills and they would sharpen them. And feather quills, as you know, are hollow. So it's basically a hypodermic needle. And they would stick it in there and allow any pus to drain out of them which may have been somewhat effective. Nowadays, you wouldn't necessarily burst these because the risk of infection from puncturing, like from a puncture wound is, is greater than the, the benefit of, of draining one of those. But, but again, this is one of those procedures that like accidentally kind of works. Right. You know, the more important function here, though, is that they tended to often work as kind of the, the record keepers for the town that's going through plague they would keep track of the deaths they would keep track of who had died they would often act as witnesses for uh wills because no one else would come close enough to witness wills and these people realized that they were dying often at a time in their life when they never thought they would have to think about inheritance in any way shape or form and they were often given special dispensation to perform autopsies so they did learn a thing or two about anatomy along the way The dispensation, I think, was basically along the lines of what do we have to lose here? We have to learn everything we can. Yeah. Yeah, especially at that point. I'm surprised they hadn't hit that sooner. Specifically in Christian nations, some of the taboo came at least very, very, very early on. And it had had moved far away from this by the 
by the the middle ages was this idea of like a literal resurrection Mm. the body you go into the ground with is the body you come out with so while we had kind of moved away from that idea of 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 a very very literal bodily resurrection in like you know without the the aspects of like well things have been restored and whatnot it's kind of like well like look at them like they've they've had the plague like it's kind of like it's it's already pretty bad like what what could we do that's worse the the plague has already kind of desecrated this corpse right you know besides that there is the issue again of well where did this plague come from probably god which is a which is a whole nother issue but yeah Uh, it it is certainly a consideration here who are they blaming this time (laughs) anything and everything i'm telling you but you know bodies are being buried in mass graves again often without any funeral rites whatsoever because no one could keep up with it honestly the the priests and clergy were some of the worst hit people because they were giving last rites to so many plague-ridden people that they were the most exposed death rates among the clergy were very very high there weren't enough priests to go around. That's upsetting. Yep. I mean, we've talked about a lot of upsetting stuff, but there's there's something there, there's there's an element of despair there that's just yeah, it's something else. I've still got the image of those plague doctors in my head. Oh, honestly, though, right? All of these people dying, you know, we're talking about dozens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions. It had a profound effect on European society. I think we could probably both use a quick break and uh, let some of that sink in, some of that just grim reality settle in. And, uh, and when we come back, we can talk about some of the, uh, the immediate effects on, on Europe of the 14th century. All right. We'll be right back. Hey, guys. Last time we talked a little bit about how we just hit the three-year anniversary for this show, which is very, very exciting. And I mentioned a couple of ways that you guys could help out if you wanted to say thank you, namely rating and reviewing the show. Um, somebody pointed out to me that probably that would have been a really good time to also bring up the Patreon campaign for this show, which I don't bring up all that often, um, through which you can support it very directly and uh, financially if uh, if you so choose. Um so if that's something that's interesting to you, you can always go to patreon.com slash HI101 um, and pick out uh, an option for uh, a monthly donation to help support the show. Uh, it all goes back into making the show a little bit better, buying new equipment, uh, things like that. So uh, once again, there's lots of uh, different rewards at different uh, levels of donation. Um, go to patreon.com slash HI101 and take a look see if there's something there that uh, that works for you in terms of uh, in terms of donation level and i would be incredibly grateful if that was something that you were interested in all right let's get back to the show we're back on hi101 here with colin oliver hello and we finally got to the black death we did hooray yeah that's i'm not i avoided it for a while some of it's for context some of it's just like Try, try to spare you a little bit. Yeah. It's the thing, though. It always gets here sooner or later. None of the stuff leading up to it was particularly, you know... There's only so much I can do to soften up this topic. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It's a, it's, a, it's a pretty awful... Just everything. Just everything's awful here. 
the idea of like a full 50% of Europe dying is hard to wrap your head around. It's been a very long time since percentage wise, we've had uh, a catastrophe on that level of loss of human life. Yeah. Person for person, you know, we've, we've had some stuff that's gotten up there. We've had a few wars that have been pretty terrible. But um, by like percentage numbers. Oh, it's just the idea that looking around you, you know, flip a coin on, on every single person you see is just, it, it's, it's, you get into a headspace where it's kind of like, I can't really make this real for myself. Yeah. And, and that I think is one of the, the hardest things about the social situation of Europe at this point in time, um, because they had to, because it was their reality. And that's tough. That's, that's like psychologically incredibly hard. It would take until the 17th century to recover population numbers in Europe. That's a long time. And, you know, there's, there's weird things that end up happening through the 14th century that are really only explicable by recognizing the fact that this was like an existential crisis just like the, the the literal meaning of life was being called into question by the scope of this disease yeah and and everything i'm saying right now feels like massive hyperbole but i'm just trying to be as accurate as possible about just how devastating this is there was well let's let's start with this there was a significant increase in crimes punishable by death there's a there's a marked recorded increase in crimes like murder um like rape like highway robbery you know there's a lot more punishable death by death crimes back then than there are now but there is a almost nihilistic sense of the worth of your own life for some people and when it comes down to you are starving because the earth is a carrying capacity and well you've got a coin toss chance of dying in the next couple years anyways people get desperate there's there's sometimes a tendency to interpret that in almost a bacchanalian sense where it's kind of like you know life doesn't matter let's do whatever i feel like i think it's more of a risk reward um, problem in that the the challenges people are facing are are so insurmountable and the relative severity of any punishment of being caught has been so diminished by just the human condition of being alive in 14th century what Europe. Are, what are you going to do to me yeah. that isn't worse than what's happening? Pretty much. Yeah. God, that's grim. <laughs> uh, yep. the, the battles in the Hundred Years' War become bloodier and bloodier as the as the war goes on. Some of this is just simple escalation. I mean, when you are at war for 117 years, uh, you get better at killing. It's just a fact. Also, professional armies are better at killing than a bunch of serfs who grabbed whatever pointy tool was nearest at hand or whatever terrible equipment their feudal lord decided to bestow upon them. Right. Either way, it's not going to go great. But there has been some suggestion that even the reinstitution of a professional army to some extent suggests a cheapening of the worth of a human life that people are willing to gamble away lives 
more readily. I'm not sure how much I buy that, but I'm not going to straight up call it wrong either, I don't think. There's a sick logic to that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of where I stand on it too. I don't love it, but I don't have a much more logical way of dismissing it than that. Everyone kind of just became really accustomed to death. Very much so. It's just a very normal part. Well, normal, but, you know, it's just, yeah. Yeah, and it's weird because it, it becomes very familiar to people whose voices have actually survived from this time in in a, in a very sometimes fatalistic, but also kind of, uh, how to put it, sometimes there's a certain comfort in knowing what's coming. And it seems incredibly grim to us now who don't have to look that in the face you can see a certain abandonment in people's treatment of death uh, coming out of the the art and the literature of this time i mean the idea that this plague is coming from god which is the you know the, that that's the main explanation here it raises a lot of really hard questions specifically what has the world done to deserve this yeah. and whatever your answer ends up being looking around you one of the one of the most reasonable conclusions to come to is that this is the end of things this is it we have screwed up for the last time or maybe god has decided to abandon this little project and now we're just we're just done and living out what little remains and that's you know that's a it's a tough pill to swallow yeah <laughs> that's that's not one that something you know that somebody just accepts easily it's it's it, yeah they, they start questioning the order of things you know there's a lot of um death motifs that come up as i mentioned in, in the literature uh you know chaucer comes to mind specifically there's uh the the motif of the uh the dance macabre i don't know if you if you're at all familiar at least with the term i would imagine i'm familiar with the term yeah um there was this uh motif that kept coming up in art of basically a, a personification of death leading almost a chorus line of of people to the grave and the chorus line would be made up of uh you know a king and a pope and a peasant and you know a child and a young woman and j just you know people of every station in society uh that have all been made equal by death and they would all be in skeletal forms being led to the grave kind of happily grinning as they went and it, it seems you know it seems macabre looking at it but again there, there there is a great equalizer there there's nothing about being wealthy or being powerful that protects you from the plague you're still just as likely to get it as anyone else well given that nobody understood how it was being transferred well and, and given that um there's a sense of of cosmic futility to trying to avoid it if this is indeed god's punishment right yes that would have been their interpretation there was a, a I, I really like this character in northern europe known as the the plague hag who was an old woman and she carried with her a broom and a rake and if she decided to use her broom then everyone would be swept away and if she used the rake then some would slip through the the forks of the rake and be spared <laughs> right <laughs> you also see outbreaks of mass psychosis in this period of time uh in 1374 in a number of villages along the rhine 
a dancing plague broke out. Have you ever heard of this? There was a more famous version in the 16th century, but this was the first recorded uh, incident where people went out into the streets and just started dancing. And they didn't want to dance. And this wasn't convulsions and this wasn't seizures. This wasn't, it was dancing. And when people saw the people dancing, they tended to join in. And people would dance for days on end until their feet were bloody, until they physically couldn't dance anymore. We don't know why. So that's the stuff of nightmares. We don't know why. And I I mean, one of the most compelling theories, at least for me, is that just the pure psychological stress of it all tends to leave people open to certain types of mass psychosis. And mass psychosis is a really interesting topic that's completely separate from what we're talking about, but it's, a, it's an interesting thing. It might as well be um, a plague the way that it can spread from person to person, convinced that something that is not real is real. We've talked a lot about the trauma from the perspective of health and, and impact on society. Mm-hmm. Mental health. <laughs> is uh, an aspect of history that is very often uh, overlooked. Mm-hmm. And yet, again, every person you know, coin flip. Just even as a thought exercise. I don't think I could bring myself to make a list and flip a coin. And that's purely hypothetical. Mm. They had to deal with it. They had to deal with it. Had to find a way to cope. Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say that, that there were a great many people who just didn't cope. And I think that you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who would call that weakness. Um, it, I, it's, it's, it's just a terrifying thing. E- even if it was to be happening today, I mean, look at the, look at the reaction to the Ebola scare from a couple years ago, a couple, very, very few people actually caught the disease. Oh, but the, the, the news was just, just lit up. And I, I'm sure many people personally know people who were very, very worried about it. SARS? SARS was a big one. The swine flu, the avian flu. Yeah. All of that's been, you know, kind of just, it it gets to you a little bit. And that's today with our understanding of medicine, with our trust in modern medicine, with our understanding of epidemiology and how to control the spread of these diseases. Even with our personal understanding of what disease is, we're not really living in a world where the order of things depends on keeping, keeping certain things in place to an extent where a sickness can upset that. And even with all of that, I think losing one and two would be an incredibly traumatic event for the world today. I, I say I think like there's a, a possibility that it couldn't. Um, it, it absolutely would be. Yeah. To add in that element of uncertainty, um, to add in that worldview that you're under an incredibly direct version of benevolent protection is going to be just shattering. I'm I'm surprised everyone didn't just kind of roll over and lie down in some sort of nihilist haze. But society did recover. It took it took time, quite a few hundred years. I mean, you know, it, it's it's not it's not just this familiarity with death that comes up. There is there is backlash, right? Like there's just, there's there's lots of backlash in society. The the most prominent one being um, blaming Jews. The Jewish population in in Europe at this point in time is almost exclusively segregated in ghettos. 
And for a number of reasons, the Jewish population was less affected by the plague than the general population, percentage-wise. That doesn't mean that they weren't affected. They were, deeply. And that doesn't mean that, you know, they didn't lose anyone. They did. It was just that they are smaller populations, and by percentage, they seem to be getting the disease less often. There are a number of theories about that, not least of which is they weren't mixing with the rest of the population because they simply weren't allowed because they were Jewish. And the segregation of the Jewish people in Europe at this point in time was fairly complete. Another really important aspect of this is that there are certain purity laws in Judaism that would help mitigate the spread of the plague to some extent, including things like washing hands before preparing meals uh, or washing corpses before preparing them for burial. Is it going to stop the plague in its tracks? No, of course not. No, because they didn't have some magical better understanding of medicine. No, it's got nothing to do with that. But the perception by the average non-Jewish European at this point in time is they're not getting sick as much. What could possibly explain that? Maybe they're responsible. There's this uh, trope that comes out uh, known as poisoning the well in which it was believed that they were that the Jewish people were actively poisoning the town well, causing the plague. And dozens of Jewish neighborhoods were obliterated in this time. Something like 60 major ones and over 100 smaller ones. There was something known as the, uh, the Erfurt Massacre, Erfurt, Germany, in 1349, in which anywhere between 100 and 3,000 Jews were killed uh, because of the plague. Not by the plague, because of... No, in, yeah, in, in, in violence, uh, as retribution, as seen by their attackers. For what very, very little it's worth, the Pope condemned these attacks. It doesn't really help them any. No. Uh, it, it, it doesn't change the fact that there were uh, dozens of Jewish communities that were either completely scattered to the wind or, or just outright killed completely um, because of this disease. And it's, 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 everything about that is kind of heartbreaking because I, I, on one hand, completely understand the human tendency for looking for something to blame. Yeah, when things are that horrible and you're, you're already that broken of a person from everything that's happened. You're looking for anywhere to direct that anger. On the other hand, just the, the absolute knowledge that it was completely misplaced is, is just absolutely shattering. Well, and like taking the tragedy and just amplifying it with so much more unnecessary death. The Jews weren't the only ones that were affected by this misplaced anger. Um, you would see the same thing leveled against basically anyone foreign in your town, permanent residents or traders. The Romani population was affected by the same. I mean, their story tends to parallel that of the Jewish people in Europe fairly closely. So that's that's not a terrible surprise, but again just uh, an absolute tragedy within a tragedy yeah there's there's not a lot else to say about that end of things but you know people people trying to find an outlet for that frustration and anger and 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 psychological trauma uh, definitely manifested in in very violent ways you also see the establishment of of some rather heretical uh religious groups because the natural extension of all of this is well clearly the catholic church hasn't gotten everything right or else we wouldn't be in this pickle right gotta gotta change things up you get a group called the flagellants who believed basically that the world was lost to sin and that the only way that they could guarantee any sort of 
positive afterlife was by uh, whipping themselves in atonement for the sins of themselves and of all mankind, uh, quite literally opening up, you know, wounds on their backs, which in turn isn't necessarily the best thing for infection. No, no, um, no that'll uh, that'll make way for more disease. Yeah, I mean the the plague would remain for centuries. This is this is a four year kind of massive bomb that's dropped in the middle of Europe, but it tends to come back every five to fifteen years. Uh, it's just after that first wave, uh, it's going to become more localized uh, in its outbreaks, um, usually contained within a specific city or a, a specific geographic region. The idea of less deadly in all of this is just excruciatingly relative. Less deadly means only a couple hundred thousand people die in an outbreak. After that four-year initial wave, uh, the worst one was actually in the 17th century, in the 16, uh, between 1626 and 1631, about a million people died in France of a plague. We talk about the Great Plague of London, uh, mm. 1665 to 1666. That one, <laughs> I was about to say only, killed about 100,000 people. That being said, it is within one city, and that was a quarter of the population of London at the time. So, uh, you know, still locally incredibly devastating. Yeah. There's also a theory that that one was cut short by uh, the Great Fire of London because it burned basically the entire city to the ground and likely uh, would have killed a, a great number of rats. And when it was rebuilt, it was all stone and brick, which is both less flammable, so they learned a lesson. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, and makes a worse home for rodents. Mm -hmm. So they may have solved the plague by burning down the city. Yay. <sighs> Yeah. Yeah. Started on Pudding Lane, I believe. Which is a great name for a lane. It's a fine name. This plague is eventually going to burn itself out in the 19th century, basically. The reasons for that are still just completely unknown. The suggestions there are maybe the population that survived all those waves of plague became um, more resistant to it just through, you know... Surviving it. Yeah, just... just uh, evolutionary pressure. Um, there seems to be uh, a certain gene in people of European descent that seems to make them slightly more resistant to certain types of infectious disease. Now, whether or not that is actually a result of the plague itself is is under some doubts, but there there is a, a significant portion of, of uh, scientists that believe that this gene was amplified by the pressure of all of those years of plague. It also, interestingly enough, helps you survive smallpox. And this is one of the reasons that uh, people believe that Europeans were so effective at carrying so many terrible, terrible diseases to North America and uh, uh, wreaking havoc on native populations here. Right. Uh, and South America. Uh, all of the Americas. Yeah. Everybody got a really bad. Maybe the rat population got more resistant to uh, the plague. Remember that you need the rats to basically gorge themselves to make for very very good hosts for the bacteria but they wouldn't generally survive that exactly um and you need both uh, a surviving and uh, uh both a carrier and a and a uh non-carrier uh host for optimal growth of the bubonic plague maybe people just got healthier their diets got better as the population went down and farming became more effective and food became much more plentiful as a result of both of those causes we're not entirely sure and eventually, I guess it was legitimate medicine. 
Yes, and I mean, this plague will burn out just as legitimate medicine is coming into play. So I wouldn't put any any credit towards that in, in, in this round. Might have prevented any resurgence. Did it? Maybe not. Let's, hang on, let me check this note. Uh, third plague? Huh. Well, I'm not quite done wrapping up the 14th century, oh, so man. feel feel humory a little bit more. Oh, sure. I mean, precautions are also put into place, right? Quarantines, just as a regular rule, uh, were put into place fairly often. Faster identification and isolation of the plague, realizing that just not going near them was the best way of dealing with it. Also, interestingly enough, in a very, very big picture, ignoring this, the human suffering angle way of looking at things, the plague was kind of good for Europe in a lot of ways. I know. I get it. Here's the deal. <laughs> when there are half as many people in effectively your world, because let's face it, mobility wasn't as high back then, and you're a peasant, before the plague, you're basically tied to your plot of land as a serf for your life, and so would your children be and your grandchildren. There wasn't anything technically forbidding you from moving, but only because there was essentially collusion between all of the serf, uh, the, the lords. Um, as to what terms to offer the serfs to farm that land. Now you have a bunch of lords who have lost all their serfs and are willing to try to attract more by offering better wages. Which means more social mobility for peasants. And the effective end of serfdom, because serfdom depends entirely on the immobility of the peasant class. As soon as you can go to your lord and say, you know what, I'm not doing that for you because there's a guy three miles down the road who is paying 20% better than you are. And you know what? I'm paid up. I'm going to go rent from him. As soon as you can do that, the, the entire order of feudalism falls apart. It's done. And that's exactly what happened. It would take some time, but that's what happens. The nobility were so concerned about the social mobility that there were laws put in place trying to restrict both wage increases to pre-plague year levels and something that's known as uh, sumptuary laws. Are you familiar with sumptuary laws at all? I'm not. Sumptuary laws are completely arbitrary laws that are put in place to enforce the current social order. So... For example, you may have heard the one about how only kings are allowed to wear purple. I have not heard You've that. You've never heard that? It has to do with the price of dye, uh, but then when dye prices starting to go... So so if you could afford indigo dye, you were, you were very, very wealthy. But then prices of dye started coming down and kings went, okay, well, we'll just make it illegal because if everyone can afford to wear this color, then no one can tell who's important and royal. Right. Which is kind of dumb. It's a law specifically for the purposes of... of Allowing them to still look yeah. the way they want to look. Yeah. So there were laws restricting how people could dress, how, uh, which weapons people could carry uh, based on their social class, uh, the fabrics they were allowed to wear. Like it got very granular granular in like a almost creepy way. It gets very like policey, you know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. it was very much policing the way people wanted to live their lives. And it's kind of like it did not stand. And for like really obvious reasons, yeah. there were uh, a number of peasant revolts uh, that would come out of this era. Um, Partially because this, uh, they were attempting to restrict the social mobility of, of peasants. Partially because things were absolutely terrible and, and you know, other, other political pressures. But suffice it to say that more long term, this was, this was the end of, of serfdom, at least in Western Europe. Um, 
Eastern Europe, they tended to kind of double down on the whole, no, you're tied to this land sort of thing, to the point where uh, serfdom essentially became uh, slavery by another name. Right. Um, inheritance laws would change drastically out of this. Now, uh, basically, every uh, heir would get something because there was enough land to go around, not just your eldest heir. Land prices went way down because there was so much of it available um which also helped with peasant mobility because all of a sudden they're making double the wages they used to be and land just and got they the can cheapest buy land. yeah it just got as cheap as it's ever been yeah all of a sudden you can afford to buy yourself a little farm and not be beholden to any lord it's great you are very happy and then there's this pressure to innovate the thing about harvesting grain is it's very labor intensive and if you have the highest population that uh, Europe has ever had and a pool of incredibly cheap work it's not that big a deal to get a whole bunch of peasants out there swinging scythes all of a sudden there's half as many people you got to learn how to work smart not hard so there's a move towards animal husbandry raising meat over uh, necessarily grain farming which probably helped the health of Europe in general right. quite a bit yeah it also means that people started looking into more effective ways of farming which likely, you know, we're talking centuries down the line here, likely helped start the Industrial Revolution. Because that's really where the Industrial Revolution starts, right, is with um, uh, water mills and things like that to help grind grain. And, uh, you know, very soon moves into water engines to help uh, spin spin cotton, things like that. Again, that's a bit of a stretch maybe to blame that on the on the plague, but not not really not a huge stretch no there is that aphorism about necessity being the mother of invention Mm. and you know they had to make some changes they were in trouble there was a lot of re-examining that needed to be done after all those people died and some uh, some not so great things kind of had to go away yeah absolutely they were held in place by the kind of overall success of the human race from like a reproductive standpoint there were so many people that each person was worth less which is kind of a, again, a grim statement. I'm saying a lot of stuff I don't love today. And this 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 loss of, of massive amounts of human life and this familiarity with death and um, introduction of a random element to people's lives. Because randomness did really enter people's lives in a big way at this point. It wasn't about how pious you were. It wasn't about uh, which social class you were born into. It didn't really matter you were up to the like, your your fate was was up to the whims of chance really made people kind of consider the value of human life and again this is a massive stretch but what you're going to see coming out of this eventually is the introduction of of individualism as a way of thinking about human beings of of self-determinism as being something that people value because all of a sudden you have an impact as a person where in in the the surf reality of of the 14th century you were another guy that they were going to hand a, a sickle to and you were going to be uh harvesting grain until one day you dropped dead of who knows what because the doctor was never going to see you yeah and that was your life and that was everyone's life there's inevitably a, a religious out you know a fallout of this as well um you start seeing the introduction of of all of these really heretical sects of christianity that would you know plague the church for the next 200 years until the reformation finally goes through you know starting in the 1300s 
you have the church putting down heresy after heresy, a lot of which are kind of grim in comparison to the picture of the universe presented by the the standard church. I mean, the 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 introduction of dualism, this idea that there is a a horrible, awful physical world, and then this uh, this other spiritual world that your 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 spirit will one day inhabit. That's a uh, an ongoing theme of these heresies, these so-called heresies that come up uh, in these centuries. And it's not hard to see where they maybe got this impression or even just this hope that as horrible as things might be on earth, that's because the earth itself is imperfect, um, is fundamentally imperfect, and that there's a, another side to existence that is right. perfect. Yeah, And, uh, you know, you can see where they might have gotten these ideas. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, given the circumstances. Yeah, yeah. A lot of that stuff kind of makes a bit more sense in the context of um, this cataclysm. I suppose it's not an unfair word. But I mean, you know, ultimately the the church loses a lot of its authority because it was powerless to help in the plague years. Just couldn't do anything. And that's going to lead to splintering of of Christianity. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's kind of... That's kind of early modern Europe, late medieval Europe in, in a nutshell, is this disease. And it's kind of it's kind of amazing how much it kind of gets its fingers into, even just a little bit. Sometimes it's a complete stretch. You know, a lot of these things, it's kind of impossible to prove one way or the other. That doesn't make the theories bad, necessarily. And a lot of what interpreting history is about is taking a good theory and running with it. Sure. It's about finding, it's about finding proof in the facts of the of what happened in the reality of the situation that help back up a, a an overarching theme that you're trying to uh, support. And and what makes good history is is presenting these themes, uh, defending these themes, and if they don't hold up, having someone else come and and evaluate them. It's it's very similar to peer review and in science right like it's 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 got to be uh defensible in this specific case it's particularly interesting because i don't think there's a lot of things you can claim that happened after that weren't affected by it this is something that and, and that's... took out 50 percent of the population mm-hmm. literally everything that happened after that was somehow impacted by it and that's what makes it really interesting to talk about and and figure out exactly how yeah and and but in another way it's almost problematic because it's so pervasive, it's kind of like, well, okay, where, where do you draw the line? Where, where, yeah, where do you, where do you draw the line? I yeah. mean, is 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 all of is all of European history post fourteenth century just a big reaction to the plague? And at what point do you draw the line and say, okay, we're done, you know, necessarily reacting to the plague here? Right. How how far does the actual causality of all of this reach? And you do have to find a line at some point because you have to be careful in history about determinism, right? It's, it's, a, it's a very easy pitfall to, fall, to, to come into. Right. And, you know, next thing you know, I'm explaining to you how the Cold War is the fault of the bubonic plague. <laughs> and I, no joke, could probably put together that argument for you if I, I really felt you. like it. And it's not, it's not a useful way of looking at the no. past. Like, it's just not. And just because something happened before something else and just because something had an impact on something else doesn't mean that that thing caused the next thing. And you've got to be very careful about that. You do. Yeah. Um, that being said, I think anything that happened within the next couple of decades after the Black Plague, uh, the Black Death, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, 
there's a very strong case to be made for a, a very very direct well cause. And the influences we've talked about here i think have not been i mean you've quoted even some of them as, as being a stretch but i think they've all been well within uh, uh reasonable bounds of speculation yeah and, and some of that is just you know hedging on my part um I, you know it's it's still a contentious uh issue in history um mostly because of uh both how overarching it is and how bad the records are from that long ago right. it's tough i mean you know um there are people who who don't believe that it was uh why pestis at all that that actually affected these people they don't think it was the bubonic plague they don't think that it matches uh the descriptions that were given uh criticisms are leveled about uh where the bubos show up why are bubos showing up on the neck when fleas almost always bite on the legs why are there multiples when the modern uh, bubonic plague usually only has one bubo that shows up why did it spread faster than the modern bubonic plague would have it doesn't seem to uh, makes sense. Why does it uh, uh, spread in warmer uh, weather than the modern bubonic plague does? Uh, the census data is not really that strong from that period of time. How do we know that many people actually died? Mm. Is it too high? Is it too low? Why don't we have records of rats dying off in mass numbers right before the plague hit, which is something that we should have? You know, why did it never become endemic? The modern bubonic, bu- bubonic plague moves into an area and it stays there and it repeats every year. The Black Death it, it came and it existed there for a year or two, faded away for anywhere between five or 15 years, and then came in another wave. There are responses to all of these, and very good ones, in my opinion. The, the, the main argument hinges on the fact that when we do genetic profiling on the bacteria found in these, mace, in these mass graves, it is Y. pestis, but it's a different strain of Y. pestis than exists now. And a lot of stuff kind of goes out the window as soon as it's a different strain because we know that it's going to behave differently, but it's also an extinct strain, so we don't know exactly how. Right. Why don't we know about massive rat die-offs? Maybe there were just rats dying all the time. Why don't we have evidence of more rats dying than others? I mean, who's digging up rat bodies? Yeah, there's, 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 no, there's no one doing rat archaeology. Uh, uh, yeah. It's just not a field that exists. Uh, the other thing is the the oriental rat flea to black rat, or sorry, black rat to oriental bla- uh, uh, rat flea to human model was mainly developed for uh, the spread of the bubonic plague in India, where that's the most likely or, or the, the most beneficial environment for the plague to exist in. It doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly how it worked in Europe. Sure, there were lots of rats, but I mean, as we discussed originally, it was in marmots. It'll it'll do well in most rodents. Yeah. Um. I, I was reading about it in gerbils. I mean, it's, you know, it it could exist in other cycles than that specific one. People have pro- uh, uh, proposed anthrax as uh, like a strain of anthrax as being responsible. People have proposed mm-hmm. uh, hemorrhagic uh, virus similar to Ebola. I still personally think that Ypestis makes the most sense. It seems to be the accepted. Uh... It's certainly accepted, but I, I think uh, as many people uh, disagree with that, I, I think that the, the evidence is strong enough that um, until something far more convincing comes along, that is the most likely uh, cause of it. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. No. To epidemiologists, it does. To uh, doctors, it does. To us looking at it from a historical perspective, it doesn't matter what killed 200 million people. Something did. The impacts are... are um... Those people are dead no matter what it was that killed them. Yeah. Um, it would be nice to know. Uh, no one likes uh, a, an unsolved mystery, especially in history. Man, some of the 
some of the stuff that we're never ever going to solve just drives people insane. And I get it. It's frustrating. It's nice to have a good answer for it. At the end of the day, anywhere between 75 million and 200 million people died in a four-year span. That's outrageous. I mentioned the third plague earlier. Yes. Began in 1855. It is the the current strain of Y-Pestis. It is the modern bubonic plague. Uh, Killed over 12 million people in Asia. Um, At least 10 million of those in, in India. The rest mainly in China. Uh, all of all, all three waves have started in China, um, and it was mainly a, a concern for uh, British-ruled India. And you, you, when you watch the the spread of it, um, it's very apparent that it is British-ruled. You'll see spreads very quickly to Burma, to South Africa, to Australia, New Zealand. There's a there's a clear pattern here. Yeah, <laughs> to the Caribbean. But I mean, I don't want to call it. I don't want to say that it wasn't bad. That's not true. Millions and millions and millions of people died. But by the time it really got into the swing of things in the the late 19th century, we now knew what bacteria were. And medicine is going to quickly work to find solutions for this problem. We understand, you know, medical hygiene. We understand the need to wash hands and to, um, you know, protect our faces. Uh, that's going to significantly inhibit the spread of the disease. The discovery of penicillin uh, by Alexander Fleming is going to be a game changer, especially when it goes into, you know, it was discovered in the 20s, wasn't really put into uh, widespread medical use until uh, 1943 or so. You know, once you have antibiotics, you know, you kind of got the plague beat. I mentioned at the very beginning very, very beginning of the first half of this one that we're, we're below 200 deaths a year at this point right. from bubonic plague. We, we finally hit that number below 200 in, in the 50s, about 1959. Every once in a while, it crops up in uh, the United States or in Africa or India. Madagascar seems to be particularly bad. But in general, it's got as much to do with uh, sanitation, public health things going on in the area where it crops up as, as anything else. Protections these days include uh, wearing bug spray so that fleas don't jump on you. Right. Putting bug spray on your family pets or any animals that you're around. Uh, keep the fleas off of them. But even um, then, even if they get fleas, even if you get fleas, they are probably very unlikely these days to have any... Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Plague. Um, you know, uh, put out rat traps. Like, it's it's very very simple like preventative measures mainly is is what's leading the charge against uh, bubonic plague. The the need for vaccination is virtually none. Yeah, you can you can still get the plague today if you're very 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 unlucky. It is the the third wave of the plague. It's a you know it's a an absolute lightweight compared to its big brothers uh, coming in and really only you know a few tens of millions killed. Gee gee that's all huh? Gee that's all. It's a horrible disease, yeah. and uh, we are very, very lucky to be alive in a time where we can, you know, rest easy knowing that it's not coming our way anytime soon. And if it is, we got a very, very good chance of beating it. I have a renewed appreciation for that. Uh, every time I do one of these medical uh, episodes, <laughs> surgery one, the smallpox one, it's just like, man, everyone talks about like what time period they'd love to go back to. It's like none of them, please. Good I'm right good. here. I, that's not not 14th century Europe, please. Yeah. I'm 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 quite all right where I am. <laughs> Go modern medicine. It's it's a an underappreciated uh, blessing. 
that's of, of, not the, the, of the time we live in. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's the Black Dad. Here we go. How are you feeling? Are you okay? I'm good. You doing um, all right? I feel, I feel like you end up having to ask me that question after after a lot of shows. And it's, I'm, I'm always uh, happy to have you check in on me, make sure that I'm well, that's good. not uh, impacted too heavily. Sure. Well, hey, I mean, you know, talking talking prohibition was one thing. We got to you know, talk about jazz music and speakeasy. That's a good time. Yeah. Enjoyed that one a lot. I mean, our, our our total death count over over the two parts of this one is eh, I'm I'm guessing we probably rank in somewhere around 400 million dead. Yeah, I say we clock in right around there. Mm-hmm. I think uh, when you start talking percent like percentage of global population numbers, like anytime you need to bring that into it, it's a bad time. Yep. No, I'm I'm good. I chose this topic because it's one of those things that it's easy to. Uh, when you're not into history, know about very vaguely mm-hmm. and not have any real sense of what it was, the scale of it, what it impacted. Yeah. Um, there is like a, a general cultural sense, I think, where some of the themes that really entered the European consciousness at the time have certainly stuck around in one form or another. Even like uh, the, the the image of death uh, playing chess with a person first showed up during this this black death uh right. era again this idea that your relationship with death is essentially a wager it has very little to do with you know your day-to-day and, yeah. and a lot to do Do- with your doesn't your matter luck. so much what you do you might get selected to die yeah and and you know that's that's an image that that stretches across seven centuries that's that's uh it's longer than anything shakespeare put out that's uh you know there's there's not a lot of cultural tropes that appear both in I don't think specifically Chaucer, but contemporary to Chaucer and also, you know, Ingmar Bergman films. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's a, it, it's certainly, you know, even people will point to things like uh, Gothic architecture as being a reaction to the, the very dismal and functional life that being around the plague causes. So some of that stuff I, I feel is, is maybe a little more of a stretch. I don't know. I, it's hard to say. It Arch- hard. Architecture isn't really my strong point. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Um, but you know, there, there's there's definitely that that uh, uh, entry of the grotesque into the the cultural lexicon that it's still there. It's never really gone away. Well, and now I also have to walk around with the knowledge that those plague doctors actually existed. Well, if and I they actually uh, looked like that, if I'm here for anything at all, it's for burdening my friends with, <laughs> with grotesque knowledge, <laughs> disturbing mental images. Hey, I uh, I forgot to mention this at the end of, uh, at the beginning of my show, but uh, I just I just realized uh, now after that, at the ending of uh, recording, this is uh, this is going up in June. That means uh, this is three years of doing H I one on. So you're on the wow. You're on the the anniversary episodes. Awesome. Congratulations. It's the Black Death. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for being on. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm. I'm uh, honestly though. I'm. I'm very, very glad that you could make it here today, and uh, and then we got to talk about it. It was a, it was a very interesting topic. Absolutely. Uh, divorced from all of the, um, all of the death and disease and uh, and and terrible, terrible calamity. It was. Uh, it, it was an interesting topic, and I'm glad we. Always happy to be on the show. Uh, we always talk about really interesting things, and even if they are a little on the macabre side, you know, mm-hmm. you still learn a lot. Well, I'm very glad to hear it. So, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
consequences of the Black Death were incredibly far-reaching, both good and bad. It killed millions of people in a few short years, stimulated technical innovation and exploration, caused unrest and revolt, ended the era of chivalry and serfdom, and so much more. But both the good and bad serve as reminders that history isn't always within our control. Sometimes random elements have a greater effect on the course of history than anything that can be willfully determined. Next time on HI101, we'll be talking about the Irish Revolution. That episode should be up on July 1st. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.